And Lord, today we do, uh, above everything else, desire to worship and praise you, give you the attention and praise that you deserve. We desire that today that your word would come alive to us and encourage us, us give us a focus concerning who you are. And we desire that uh, you would speak through your word, commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning I'd like to take a little break from our study of Romans and do a very, I think what I consider one of the most important areas of study. And it's an area that uh, a lot of people don't think about, don't concentrate on, and it's to our spiritual neglect that we do that, or we have a tendency, but uh, it concerns the nature and perfections of God. Now, I did this in Las Lunas several years ago, and I thought it was probably one of the best series that I'd ever done. It's more topical, it's more, it's, it's not expositional like what we normally are doing, but I think it's very, very valuable. It's expositional in that we get into, obviously, biblical passages, but it's more topical rather than going sentence by sentence. So, the nature and perfections of God, I like what Ryrie says in describing the situation. In the midst of the knowledge explosion of the past half century, it is astounding how many have forgotten that the greatest knowledge they could possess is the knowledge of God. So, theology is the number one study of, of any of that, anyone that wants to really know what's real. So the study of God is more important than the space program. It's not as big as it was when I first put this slide together. It's not as important as supercomputers, which is very common today. More important than cancer research, a lot of emphasis in the medical field. A new area called nanotechnology, more important than that. Oh, we need to include global warming and climatology as well. And that's included in the the dots there. So whatever you can think of in terms of an area of study, it's not as important as us knowing the one true God. So this is a very important area for a lot of reasons. And on your outline sheet, I list some of those reasons, not all of them. First one being the danger of idolatry. And in reality, if you have a distorted view of God, you are actually worshiping that distorted God, and that's idolatry. So it's important that we have a clear picture of who God is, and what I want to do is give us an introduction to that. Next week and the following week, what I'd like to do is look at just one attribute per week, and focus on it, and I'm going to focus on the ones that are probably least known, that are very clear in Scripture, but not emphasized, and we'd have to say least known. There are two categories. Does anybody know the two categories that you can classify or put together or understand the uh, what I call perfections of God? I prefer that term as opposed to attributes. You and I have attributes. But when it comes to God, he has attributes, but they are perfect. So I prefer to call them perfections. Mm -hmm. Two categories. Can you think of the two categories? One that's beyond our ever knowing. Uh, No. No. I was wrong. You're close. You're close. I think that's that's actually pretty insightful. Yeah, that's pretty good, though. 
And then yeah, one we'll that talk we, about that. we share. That's it. Everybody get it? The ones we share and the ones mm-hmm. we don't share. We don't share. Exactly. Those are the two categories. They're called communicable, kind of like diseases. They're communicable because we can pass them to others. There are communicable attributes in that God has communicated them to us being created in the image of God. Those are easier to understand. We can understand, for example, the uh, concept of love. God is love because we can experience it. He's communicated that onto us, the ability to love. But there are some that are not communicated. In other words, God reserves them to himself, and uh, we do not have those attributes, but they are certainly part of who God is. Such as, anyone want to give us? No, omniscience is a communicable one. Yeah, Omniscience, God has all knowledge, but he's given us the ability to understand and know some knowledge. So God's knowledge is infinite, but it's communicable. Can anyone think of them? See, that's what I'm saying. These are the lesser known. Eternal. Okay, eternal. We have a thought of eternity. Well, we have an idea, but it's... Eternality, you could, yeah. Eternality. You it's could, communicable. Uh, oh, it is? It's not understandable. Well, it's kind of on the edge there. Okay. There's a couple that we'll look at. Can anyone think of a couple or one? You guys need this study, right? <laughs> one that's not communicable? Yes. Well, how would we even know? Non-communicable. How would we even know? Yeah. Because the Bible tells us about it. it. Oh. The one that we're going to look at... Is sovereignty? No, no he's given us... Delegated sovereignty over the whole earth. So sovereignty is not a non-communicable. That's a double negative. So it is a communicable attribute. No one yet? Oh, oh. the Trinitarian? No. Mm, that's not an attribute or a perfection. Oh, no. Well, that's just what you said here. That's <laughs> essential. Yeah. Next week, we're going to look at what's called self-existence. Oh, yeah, right. Self-existence. Mm-hmm. So that's an example. Anyway, uh, we want to have a clear idea, a biblical idea, and that's the only place, we'll talk about that, that we can derive an accurate picture of who God is. And it's important, first of all, because of the danger of idolatry. And we don't have to go any further than the Ten Commandments. This is how the Ten Commandments begins. First Commandment. We are to worship only Yahweh exclusively. So it's very important to know who Yahweh is, who is the one true God. This is the other name, primary name for God besides Elohim, the one true God. The second commandment also is against idolatry. Third commandment against using his name in vain. So... Several of the commandments deal, in fact, all of them deal with God in one way or another, but these more directly. The fourth commandment, we are to worship that one true God. We could list them all if we wanted to, but they're all related to to God, so it's important to know the one true God. Now, I'm going to go over these somewhat quickly. We could expand all of these. In fact, I've got a three-part introduction that's on the website, so if you want the fuller description. Uh, All three of these are on the website, and then we'll add the the other ones. It's important because of the, obviously, the emphasis of Scripture. In Scripture, God is not only the main topic, but overwhelmingly 
the only, you might say, topic because everything is related to him. Everything else has some relationship to him, so he's the focus and emphasis of Scripture. Just a brief example of that, if you start off in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, Elohim. We have God as creator, so everything else stems from him. And from Genesis 1.1 all the way to the last verse, Revelation 22, verse 21, we still have God, the grace of God, one of the perfections. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. So it starts with Elohim and ends with Jesus and everything in between relates to God. So this is very important. So it's important because of the danger of idolatry, the emphasis of scripture. It's also key to theology. Lots of things we could talk about here. Let me mention a few of them. Your knowledge of God or your understanding of God, and this explains a lot of things that goes on in the church. Your understanding of God is going to affect every other area, every doctrine. Every doctrine will be affected depending on how accurate a picture you have of the God of the Bible. Every deviant system you can trace back to a faulty understanding of God. You can see the flaws from the departure in terms of the biblical God. So it's not true that Islam and Christianity worship the same God. That is a very, that's a demonic idea. To a faulty view of God. Also, every false doctrine that is the basis of these false or deviant system, you can trace that back to a faulty view of the God of the Bible. You could also say every difference in theology, even orthodoxy, can be traced to some area of either not a complete understanding or perhaps even an inadequate understanding So the test that you want to put yourself through is how well do I know the God of the Bible? How well do I know what Scripture reveals concerning God? It's also important because what you believe is going to affect how you live. That's right. So what you believe is foundational. That's why our culture that has rejected God accepts all kinds of weird things, not only in the sexual area, but uh, virtually every area. And our culture is getting more deviant, you might say, because we are departing further and further from the God of the Bible. So how you live is affected by what you believe. So you want to have a clear understanding in Scripture. So living, beliefs affect living. Beliefs are a source of all the problems that we can face in life as well. So What does Paul do when he corrects the problems at Corinth? If you look at it carefully, much of the correction is sound doctrine, but those sound doctrines are related to a clear view of God. Just one example, for example, what does he talk about when he's talking about women showing respect and submission in chapter 11 and in the first century head coverings? Don't make a big point out of that. But the whole issue there is submission and authority and that sort of thing. What's the example that he uses? The Trinity. 
There is subordination even within the Trinity. The Son is subordinate to the Father, yet equal. There's an equality, yet there's a subordination. That's 1 Corinthians 11. So, how we live and to correct, that's what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians. He's correcting bad behavior at the church of Corinth, but it's based on sound doctrine, and a lot of it is based on who God is. Beliefs form our perspectives, our motives, our attitudes. So it's important, the starting point is, what do we believe about God? Our beliefs are the basis of godliness. Who are we to be like? God himself. We want to be conformed to the image of Christ. He created us in his image Sin has damaged that. The Christian life is a lifelong endeavor to repair that damage that sin has made to become more and more Christ-like, who is the ultimate image of God. So he is God himself. So it's important also, fifthly, because it's the basis for worship. We are, Jesus says, to worship him in what? Spirit and and truth. Truth. Not just emotion, so that's just an aspect of spirit, but also in truth. In other words, in reality. Who is the one true God? Who is the God of the, the Bible? And, interestingly, God desires this. God desires that we know him. Probably the key verse, there's others, by the way, Uh, there's one in Hosea as well, and we could see some hints of that in the New Testament. But Jeremiah is probably one of the clearest passages. Notice what it says, beginning in verse 23, 9, 23, and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast in his wisdom. So you could be a person with several PhDs. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. He may be president of the United States. Let not a rich man boast in his riches. You can be a Bill Gates if you want to. Don't boast in it. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands. Key word there. And knows me. See the emphasis? Understands and knows Yahweh, the one that is speaking here, the Lord, Yahweh, thus says the Lord, that you understand and know me, that I am the Lord, I am the ultimate sovereign who exercises loving kindness. I express who I am. That's chesed, exercises loving kindness, also justice, another expression of who he is, and righteousness on earth. And then what does it close with, that passage? For I delight in these things. Not only does he delight in loving kindness, justice, and righteousness, but he delights in us understanding and knowing him. You got it? So this is a pursuit that we want to make sure that we are focused on in our Christian walk. So let's start off and take a look at some Related ideas to knowing God. There's some issues here that we need to take a look at. Here's the first issue. The issue of God's incomprehensibility. You ever heard of that? Yes. 
probably heard, heard me mention it before on other occasions. But this is an important starting point to understand this is an aspect of who God is. It's not an attribute or perfection, but it's related to who God is and understanding him. And I think this is a starting point to understand that God is incomprehensible. You know what that means? It doesn't mean we can't know him. There's a difference between knowability and comprehensibility. He is incomprehensible. In other words, we can't exhaust him for one. In fact, we in ourselves, in our sin nature, cannot even know him. But he's given us an ability to know him that overcomes our incomprehensibility, our inability. Does that make sense? I'll expand it. Yeah, I was going to ask you to talk about incomprehensibility compared to the statement in Jeremiah that it is his desire that we understand him. Yes. I'm interested in Yeah, he wants us to know him. But on our own, every pursuit on our own will end up in a distorted God. That's what incomprehensibility means. The key here, I'll get to it in a moment, but let me give it to you ahead of time. The only way we know God is through revelation, through the scriptures. Can't learn him through science. Now, he has revealed something of himself in nature, but that's inadequate. We need special revelation. We need scripture. We need revelation. It's only through an understanding of Scripture do we have a true or an accurate and a real understanding of the one true God. That's what I mean by incomprehensibility. So some of the issues, his incomprehensibility. And here's some examples from Scripture that indicate this. Job 11.7. Can you discover the depths of God? What's the answer to that, the implied answer? Nope. So it's not through... The empirical method, or through scientific method, you can't discover it. That's what's implied. Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? The answer, again, is no. Because he is incomprehensible. And by the way, it also has the idea, you cannot exhaust an understanding of God. It takes omniscience to understand an omniscient God. Does anyone have omniscience? No. No, because God has not granted that extent of knowledge. So that makes God incomprehensible. We cannot exhaust who he is. We're going to spend all of eternity understanding him still. But we will never get, but to, we'll never get to omniscience. All right? So sure. he, even, he doesn't have limits. No, he's infinite. He has no limits. So there's Job. Tozier says the following. He is not exactly like anything or anybody. So there's nothing to compare him to. There's nothing to, there's no analogy. Closest analogy is the human person that is in his image, but that is far short. And particularly with the damage of sin that has damaged that image. Uh, so we have no comprehension, no way of reaching the infinite God. Some of the characteristics of the divine nature cannot be known by a finite intelligence. That's you and I. There are some things about God we will never know because it would take omniscience. 
So we're going to spend eternity un, uh, uncovering and discovering who God is. And he has allowed us to know something of himself, and we trust that that knowledge is adequate. He's given us an adequate understanding of him through that revelation that he has given us. That's WGT Shed, that last comment there. Another passage, Psalm 139.6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. That's because it's incomprehensible. I do not have the ability to arrive at a complete and full knowledge. So Psalm 139.6. Romans, Paul is alluding, I think, to the same passage. 11, Romans 11, 33-36. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. So deep. How unsearchable. In other words, you can't arrive at it. It's too far, too deep. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. They're incomprehensible. Even Matthew eleven twenty seven, and no one, this is Jesus himself, no one knows the Son, because he's God, except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and here's the key, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So we can know the Father, but it's through that revelation. It's limited to the revelation that he has given us to understand him. That make sense? Well, when we're born again, we're given the Spirit. Yes. And the Spirit helps us to understand Yes, yes, yes. That's revelation. That's God himself revealing himself through the Spirit. Exactly. Very good. But it, you can't. The, the point being, you can't study theology, you can't study science, you can't study any area and derive an understanding of God. You need to have your theology founded and based on what God has revealed in His Word. And when you study the perfections of God, that's what you're endeavoring to do: is go to the Scriptures to see what it says about who God is. And that's what we want to do. So that's the incomprehensibility of God. But there is also the idea of the knowability of God. We have built in, because of the image of God, the ability to understand that revelation, that ability to know Him. And that's what He desires. He desires that we go to the Scriptures in order to grasp and understand who He is. Okay, so the knowability... God is not unintelligible, but we cannot frame any idea of him on our own. We can't frame a concept of God from our sin nature, from our own, apart from revelation. So he's incomprehensible. So all ideas about God, anything that we can form is incomplete for one, and you might even say inadequate if it does not... Focus on revelation. Right, so that's when you think about all the other religious systems of the world, and, and you say they were all devised as man's, I- man's, man's ideas. ideas. Yeah, exactly. 
So it's only revelation, so it's only inspired scripture where you really have an understanding of the one true God. Key. So God is knowable. He has revealed himself through several sources. General revelation. We've been studying the book of Romans. The key passage is that Romans 1 passage. We spent a lot of time on it. 19 and 20, because that which is known about God is evident within them. That's that knowability, the the ability, but it's still revelation. The unbelieving science can study science and remain an atheist. He doesn't see God because he doesn't have the spirit, as Connie was pointing out, to make him be able to see, oh, there, there, there has to be a God from science. Okay? Because that which is known about God is evident within them, so there's an internal revelation already that awakens man to God's existence, at least. Evident within them, for God made it evident. God has made it evident. He has revealed himself adequately through the creation to arouse a further interest that would ultimately lead to salvation. But what does Romans say that man does with that? He rejects that revelation. The verse goes on. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, perfections, his eternal power, you can understand something of his eternal power by seeing the universe. You see a sun that emits energy, all the energy that we need on planet Earth, and we only absorb a small, very tiny percentage of that energy. And if there's a hundred billion suns in the Milky Way, think of that amount of energy. God created that, and astrophysicists estimate that there's a hundred billion Milky Ways out there, or galaxies. What's that, 10 to the 20th power stars, or suns? And yet God created that, God has power greater than all of that. So you can learn something of that by observing astrophysics. So, since the creation of the world is invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. God has revealed himself adequately, being understood through what has been made through the creation so that they are without excuse. So God has revealed himself. The problem is not with God. The problem is with our hearts, our human hearts. So general revelation is one source. But what we need for salvation and for a clearer view of who God is, we need special revelation. And that's the scriptures. One passage out of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 4.35 To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, He is God. And who's He speaking to? The children of Israel. Remember, after the 40-year, the second generation, He's preparing them to enter the land, and it's to them. To you it was shown on Sinai. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, He is God. There is no other besides Him. And there's no other way of coming to know him apart from being shown. That's Revelation, Deuteronomy 4.35. And uh, there's an emphasis on Jesus Christ. The incarnation is very important in understanding God. That passage we looked at earlier, no one knows the Father except the Son. No one knows the Son except the Father. Kind of reverse the verse there, but the end of the verse, and those to whom... The Son desires to reveal through revelation. 
and that revelation is ultimately Jesus Christ. And John 1, 18, no man has seen God at any time. Now, it doesn't state it, but if you don't see God, there's no observation. If you don't have any observational knowledge, you know, put that together with the other verses. God is incomprehensible. Can't see him. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, who is that? That's Jesus. He has exegeted him. That's where we get the word exegesis. Exegeomai in the Greek text there. In other words, to bring out, open up, and reveal, if you will, or explain. So explanation is a good translation there. Jesus has explained the Father. We see visibly the love of the Father. We see visibly the the, the justice even. We see the wrath. We see several perfections of God. So, revelation through Jesus Christ. So, there is an ability to know God, and there's a issue of knowing God versus knowing about God. Now, you can have an academic understanding. We could expand that. I expand that in the series that I told you about. We can know all about God. We can be superb theologians and know all of the verses. But there's also another element, there's that personal element that God desires as well. And that comes not only from the understanding of these verses, but interacting, meditating on them, incorporating them, praying over them, and experiencing God as well. I know a lot about many of you, but you know, I haven't lived with you and don't know you as intimately as, say, a husband and wife. But that's what God desires, that we know him through experience as well, not just the scriptures. So we want to emphasize that aspect as well. And that's what God desires as well. Packer says, a little knowledge of God is greater than much knowledge about him. So he makes a distinction between knowing personally as opposed to knowing about him. Well, let's conclude by looking at the essential nature of God. And Linda touched on the first one when she was trying to cheat, (laughs) looking at her notes to answer my first question. She was just being a good student. Yeah, she's being a good observant student. (laughs) So we start with he's a Trinitarian God. Immediately, this separates the God of the Bible from all other systems. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned Islam, particularly Islam, but all of the cults, all of the false religions. In fact, the Trinity is a test, you might say, of orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. Connie? I have a question because a couple of times in Scripture, both in the Old and the New Testament, it is mentioned about the seven spirits of God. Yeah. Now, how can he be Trinitarian? Seven? Why wouldn't he be Septuagintarian? Oh, you know, that kind of thing. Okay. Um, okay. So. I see. Yeah. Well, in the context, and basically, I think there's only two places where it references that. I think Isaiah and the Book of Revelation, and I think in both contexts, the emphasis is there. Is there seven expressions or aspects of the one spirit? But when we come to Scripture, we get the you know where we get the Trinitarian idea is particularly when we get to the New Testament, we realize 
if Jesus is God and he distinguishes himself from the Father and he also distinguishes himself from a spirit that is given the attribute of deity as well or the characteristic of deity, we come to the conclusion and then we put those together with passages that say that God is one, Deuteronomy 6 and Ephesians 4, there's only one true God. We're led to a conclusion of God as Trinitarian. But even from the very beginning, Elohim is plural with a singular verb. In the beginning, a one God concept created the heavens and the earth, and yet Elohim is plural. So God is more than singular, but yet there is only one true God existing in three persons. We come up with that from the details of Scripture. So he's Trinitarian. Meyer says the Trinity is the point at which all Christian ideas and interests unite at once the beginning and the end of all insight into Christianity. So this is very, very key to understand a Trinitarian God. It's central doctrine of all the Scripture, and you could say beginning in Genesis 1.1, and then... It's not explicitly stated in the Old Testament, and by the time you get to the New Testament, you have to come to that conclusion because of who Jesus is. Secondly, it distinguishes Christianity. I've already said that from every other philosophy or religion or system. It's a test of orthodoxy, but it's the proper view of God. Through those quickly, I'll let you copy them if you want them. Central doctrine of Scripture distinguishes Christianity from all other systems. You can use it as a test of orthodoxy. In fact, in your conversations with Jehovah's Witnesses, when they knock on your door, that will immediately separate because they deny very... What's the word? Strongly. Strongly. That's the word I'm thinking about. The idea of the Trinity. But it's the proper view of God. God is spirit. God is spirit. And let me give you the verse on that one. For example, John four twenty four. God is spirit, and those who worship this is Jesus, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. We already looked at that. Luke twenty four thirty nine, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit interesting, does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Jesus is a contradiction. He has spirit, yet he has bones and body. But his essential nature is spirit. So he is spirit, incorporeal, invisible, infinite. Theologians also describe God as simple. And what they mean by that is... You don't add all of these perfections and make him multifaceted, if you will, but they all are close to one another or form a unity, making him simple. He's indivisible, incomplex, uncompounded are the words that theologians utilizes. So he's not a composite or compound being. That makes sense? Yeah simplicity of God, that oneness, that unity. 
He's also a living God. This is clear in lots of scriptures. Colossians 1.9, Ephesians 3.19. A living God. And we'll talk a little bit about that next week when we talk about his self-existence. He has self-existent life. We have life, but we don't have self-existent life. I'll expand that next week. And he's personal. He is personal. It is of the utmost importance. This is a theologian. It is the utmost importance to maintain the personality of God, for without it there can be no religion in the real sense of the word, no prayer, no personal communication, no trustful reliance, no confident hope. That's Louis Burkhoff. So he's personal. And we get that from the idea of several things in Scripture, self-consciousness, self-determination, personal qualities like volition, the will of God, volition, the intellect, even emotions, wrath of God, anger, personal qualities, He's referred to in personal terms. He's not referred to as it. Whenever God is referred to, he's referred to in personal terms. And you can know him as a person. So there's the knowability of God. And how is he revealed? He's revealed in the incarnate Son. He's revealed in Christ, who is personal, a person. So that's your introduction We talked about the incommunicable attributes. There are at least six. One of them may be kind of debatable. Self-existence, that's what we'll start with. Omnipresence, we don't have omnipresence. Immutability, do you know what that one is? Unchanging. Unchanging. We change every nanosecond. Every 1% of a nanosecond we change. God never changes. So it's hard to conceive of an unchanging God, but very important. The one that's a little debatable is eternality, because we are given, you might say, eternity in the future, or we're given, uh, what's the other word, immortality, but only God is truly eternal, so some classify it as an uh, incommunicable attribute. Well, wouldn't that be the infinitude? Hmm? Wouldn't that be the infinitude? Yes. So Yeah, he's infinite in all of his attributes. In other words, his love is infinite, his power is infinite, his knowledge, that's what we mean by omnipotence, his infinitude. So you could say for his eternality that just as we are sustained in this life because he calls us into being and sustains our very life, Mm -hmm. uh, even the eternity sustains our very life. It's not something that we have done to propel ourselves into eternity. No. But he, his word, what is it? His word sustains us. Yes. He called us into existence. We didn't come from, not from mm-hmm. before eternity. We were created. We were, in, yeah, we have a beginning. Yeah, we're, and we're, then he continues our yes, existence. existence. But it's not self-existent life. No, no. no. That's it's based on him. Yep. So we have everlasting life because we have a beginning. He has eternal 
He says he has no beginning nor end. Exactly. And life is, eternal life is a gift completely. I I think of eternal as more doing with time. Think about time or infinity. I see eternity as outside of time. In other words, it's totally different different. concept, a time concept. Mm -hmm. And to support uh, Mary Lee's statement, if you look at Revelation chapter 22, I think that's the eternal state described in 21 and 22, first part of 22, to get to the conclusion. And it talks about the nations partaking from the tree of life, or the tree with, what, 12 fruits? 12 fruits on it. You have it there handy? Yeah, which do you want to have read? The one that talks about partaking, the nations partaking. All right, starting to get. The angel showed me the river of the water of life. Right is crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nation. Now the word healing there is not in the repair idea, but more the maintaining, if you will. And that's the eternal state. So we are still sustained, we're still sustained even in eternity. We're not self-existent. If anyone would like to hear my brilliant, my brilliant lecture on different sizes of infinity. Ooh, different sizes of infinity. Yeah, that wow. was actually in that Christian magazine somebody gave me, the Creation Science magazine. Hmm. That's a, yeah. Just some of the communicable attributes, and then we'll close because we're already losing people. <laughs> omniscience and it's communicable because God has given us the ability to know to know things but he has infinite knowledge omnipotence he's given us limited power and it seems to run out and diminish in this life but he has infinite power we call that omnipotence he is totally separate call that holiness and what does he call us to do be holy like him because I am holy because he is holy justice he's built within us a sense of right and wrong and justice that's a communicable attribute but he is ultimate and you might say infinite justice wrath that's a perfection of God anyone here never experience anger you've had children every day right you drive. Sovereignty. Oh, if you drive, yeah. Sovereignty. Oh, or if you bike. <laughs> if you bike, yeah. Sovereignty, that's what uh, one of the things, the main thing that he's given mankind is limited or finite sovereignty over the earth, to rule the earth. Genesis, what about government? Genesis 1.28, like yeah, that's delegated sovereignty. Fathers are given sovereignty over the home. Mothers are given sovereignty over children. So it's uh, communicable. Obviously, God is truth. You could consider it an attribute or a perfection. And he's given us the ability to understand truth. Grace, we're familiar with that one. God is gracious. Goodness, these are more familiar. God is good. There's no badness in him. Love, and there's others. These are the main ones. Who wants to close for us? Bob. Our wonderful Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the delight of 
studying you and your word, the revelation that you've given us about yourself to even that you desire to draw us to yourself, to know you, to be with you for all eternal privilege of study this morning. Pray you will keep it in our hearts and minds for good, for your kingdom. Amen.